0: Thanks for joining us for this message from Awakened Church. We believe in the power of God's Word, and we pray that you're encouraged by this message. Now lean in as we hear from God's Word together. Well, I mentioned a couple weeks ago um, when I was, I was teaching uh, that as soon as December arrives, our schedules fill up so fast with all kinds of like Christmas things and all kinds of parties and gatherings, and I know that has been absolutely true for me. Uh, my family... And our, our friends and the people we serve alongside, we've been doing all kinds of parties and all kinds of gatherings, and it's been really fun. It's been really enjoyable, um, and it is kind of shocking that there's only a week left until Christmas. I know for a lot of us, that's sad. Some of us love the build-up. Some of us are super excited that it's only a week away, and some of us aren't even thinking about that. We're already into January in our minds. And yeah, Definitely some of you guys out there in that boat. Um, but calm down. We still have a week, and we still have one more week together in this series that we've been in called Christmas Spirit, The Heart Behind the Celebration. We're going to be closing this series out today, and we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 9, so you guys can start going over there now, kind of get yourselves prepared. That's what we're going to be looking at together. And I want you guys to, to know, as I was praying over what the Lord would have shared this week, I spent a lot of time asking what he wanted shared, what was important to him this week, how it was supposed to tie to Christmas, how it tied to the series, and the Lord brought several things to mind. He brought to this, brought to me this text for us this week. But he also started to bring some other things to mind, and some some things that have to do with what we talk about around Christmas, and what we sing about at Christmas time. Um, a lot of times when we read the Christmas story, um, we, we're familiar with it. We know Mary being told by the angel that Jesus is coming. We think about the shepherds in the field and the angels coming to them, Jesus being born in this chaotic scene and being laid in this manger. We think of all these things and we we realize, oh, that's, that's Jesus, the Savior. That's Jesus, our Lord. And that word Lord means king or, or master. And there's songs, all these Christmas carols. We just sang Joy to the World. That's a pretty famous, common Christmas carol, Christmas classic. But That's just one of many Christmas songs that mention Jesus as being king. Joy to the World does that when it says that, let the earth receive her king. Another song that does that, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Um, it says, glory to the newborn king. Other songs that mention Jesus as being king, Silent Night, First Noel, O Little Town of Bethlehem, they all talk about Jesus as being king. This is language we use a lot We use that language, oh, King Jesus being born, our Savior, our Lord. But at Christmas time, I think we don't actually fully grasp what that means that He is King. We celebrate that the King is here, but we don't really know what it means that the King is here, how big a deal that is, and, and what that should mean to us. So the title of today's message is, The King is Here, because Jesus has come. But we need to understand what it means that he's a king, because that's not just a term. I know in America, we don't live in a a kind of a regal society where there's um, kings and queens. That's not our our governing system. So we as Americans in the United States, we don't really understand that terminology of king. We don't really feel the weight of that, what it means to live under that kind of a monarchy or leadership. So for us, it just turns into a term. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at Isaiah 9, um, and this is going to help us understand the weight of what it means that Jesus is a king. And of you need to know before we jump into this is Isaiah 9 is a prophecy about the coming king who will be Jesus. That's what Isaiah 9 is about. And Isaiah 9 was written specifically to the people of Israel. That's who, who received this message first. And there's a lot wrapped into that, but it's important to know why that is the case, why Israel was the people that this prophecy was given to. And the reason is because Israel was the people that God had chosen to use as a unique instrument in history. And what he was doing through the people of Israel and we're going to get more into this a little bit later but he was trying to use Israel as a, a way for all of us, nations of the entire Earth to be able to look at them. And look at God and be able to see how we are supposed to engage with God. They're supposed to be painting a very tangible picture of what it means to be in relationship with God. So when they receive this prophecy, there's these spiritual and physical truths that we're supposed to understand that come through the the things that happened in their history. So that's kind of what we're going to be looking at. And it's important to know that this king who comes, who's prophesied to the people of Israel... He's not just a king who's going to come for them. He's not just a unique king for the people of Israel. He's going to be a king who ascends to the throne of Israel, but he's a king over all of us. So we need to know that as we get ready to jump in. We're going to jump in right now. We're just going to read verse 1, and I just want to give you a forewarning. When we read this first verse, it's going to be kind of hard to follow, and you're going to think, does this have to do with Christmas I promise you it does, and we're going to break that down together. So let's go ahead and read this first verse, Isaiah 9, verse 1. It says, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Okay, so, like I said, it can be confusing. I know for a lot of us, when we read that, it's just as gibberish. It's like, what does this even mean? I don't understand it. I don't see how this connects. We're going to dig through it, but I'm going to give you a summary sentence that essentially sums up what we just read in very simple terms. What we just read, put the most easy way, is Israel wasn't doing well, but hope was coming. That's what you need to know. We're going to break it down. That's what's going on in this little chunk. Israel wasn't doing well but hope was coming. That's what's being trying to be gotten across to us. So we didn't read it, but it's important to realize that what's being said here, it is a prophecy of the coming king. We're going to break that down further. But before this part, before this prophecy of this coming king, that's good news is given, there's some bad news that came before it. We didn't read it, but in Isaiah 8, There's prophecy given that some bad stuff is going to take place for the people of Israel. Isaiah 8 talks about how Israel is going to fall to the Assyrians, another nation. The the nation of Assyria is going to come in and they're going to conquer the people of Israel. And this hasn't happened yet, but it's going to be very bad for the people of Israel when it does happen. And they were just warned about what it's going to be like and why this is coming. That's what all of Isaiah 8 is about. It's explaining this. And this wasn't just happening by chance. It wasn't just that God decided, eh, let them let them get, you know, conquered. That wasn't what happened. This is happening for a specific reason. It happened because of Israel's continued disobedience before God. And the reason why this happened is because Their disobedience wasn't just basic, like, oh, they're not doing it, and God's up there like, eh, I think I'm just going to punish them today. What happened is the people of Israel, a long time before this, you can go back and read it on your own, but it's in Exodus, um, Exodus 32 through 34, God makes a covenant with the people of Israel. That's a promise. He makes a promise with them, and the promise is that they will be his people, so the people of Israel are going to be his. He will be their God. And God said, I'm going to give you all my commands. I'm going to tell you how, what it looks like to be in relationship with me. I'm going to tell you guys how you're supposed to govern yourselves. I'm going to tell you guys all of the things that I want you to do to walk righteous lives. And then God says, if you do those things, if you are obedient, if you follow my commands, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to prosper you. You guys are going to... Multiply, you're, you're going to be very blessed and well off. But then there's a flip side. God says, But as my people who are to demonstrate to the world what it looks like to be in right relationship with me, if you guys choose to not obey me, if you choose to be disobedient and dishonor me, and you do not repent, I will allow you to fall into cursing. That word cursing doesn't mean like he's going to cast a spell on them or some kind of hex. The idea behind it is that he's going to allow them to fall into bad situations. He's going to allow not good things to happen to them. So yes, exactly. Consequences to happen to them. So what happens is the people of Israel, they are not obeying God. They're not following God. They're not honoring him. They're doing all of the opposite stuff that God has asked them to do. The nation is in shambles um, because of this. The nation is struggling and God says, okay, you guys, because of this, you're going to fall into into this bad situation um, where you're going to be taken over by the Assyrians. The people of Israel weren't holding up their side of the deal. What the people of Israel were doing is, for them, they were walking in all kinds of moral decay. They weren't doing what was right before God. They were doing what was wrong. They were walking in political corruption so the way that God said for them to be governed, there to be one unified nation, they had split into two separate nations at this point. There was all kinds of corruption, people taking advantage of the system, the armies were all messed up. It was not a good place to be. And then even beyond that, there was rampant injustice in the nation. The, the people who were the weakest, the people who were the poorest, they were being taken advantage of. They were being Um, utilized for personal gain in ways that was not good for those people. So all of this stuff is going on and that leads God to say, okay, and that's what we read right here when it said, in the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. That word contempt means insignificance or cursing. And the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, those are the names of two specific tribes of Israel. There's 12 of them total. 12 tribes total, but two of them are ne- Naphtali and Zebulun. So I have a map we're going to pop up here because this is important. Up on the top in the north, the, the highest point, that yellow blip there, that's Naphtali. That's their land. And then in the blue, that's Zebulun. That's, that's their territory. This is the land that God promised to give them, that they were supposed to have, that they were supposed to occupy. They were going to be blessed. This was how they were allotted. Now, God says, I'm going to allow you guys to fall into contempt or insignificance. You're going to fall into cursing. And this is really bad. And the reason why they are singled out is because at this time, that land, that trunk right there, those two blips, that's basically all of the tribes of Israel, except for two, live in that space now. And outside of that, other nations have taken it over. That's how it was supposed to look, but that's not how it was in what we're reading here. So what happens is The Assyrians, which were prophesied in chapter 8, are going to come, and they're going to take over, and it's going to be bad for Israel. And they came from the north, right down through the top, into the yellow, and into the blue. And that's how they, they came in to conquer. And because they came in from the north, and in that manner, those two tribes got the worst repercussions. They were the first to experience the Assyrians' conquest, so they were the harshest treated, and they lost the most in, in, the, in the long run here. All of the Israel is eventually going to be affected significantly, but those two tribes are getting the worst of it. So what we need to understand when the Assyrians come, they had a strategy, that's threefold that they would em- employ when they take over. It's pretty simple, but it's really smart. The strategy is enslave, destroy, deport. That's what they would do. They would enslave by finding all of the people who are skilled, talented, strong, and they would take those people and they would take them away and make them do forced labor in whatever field they were good at and basically produce good things for the nation. Um, But they were not free anymore. Then they would come in, they would destroy. They would look for in the land all of the landmarks that were special, anything that was unique and important to the people who resided there, they would destroy it, demolish it, wipe it out. This is a way to demoralize the people, to make them feel the sense of lost and conquer or conquest, to make them realize, we don't have what we had before. This other group has wiped us out. was to to break them down. And then the last part, this is a really important part, is they would deport the people. And there was a lot of purpose in that because what they would do, they would come into that land, They would gather up all the people who are left. The people who are slaves are going to be gone. Um, Some of the people would be killed, depending on what kind of leadership they were. And all the rest are going to be deported to some other land. And the reason they would do this is because they would take all these people, bring them to some other part of somebody else's country that was conquered, and they would make them live there. They would give them all of those people's properties. And then they would import from that place, other groups. And the, the reason for doing that is that the people who were deported and brought to these new places, they wouldn't want to engage and interact and basically team up with the people around them. They would feel like outsiders. They would be of a different culture. They would be following different gods. They wouldn't want to interact and engage. And that would prevent uprising against Assyria. And a byproduct of this is that now the people that you are deporting, now they have to remember Everything that was lost. You have to realize now all these people in in Israel who are going to be deported, they're going to have to think about somebody else is in my land now. Someone else is occupying my house. Someone else has my animals. Someone else has the fields that my grandfathers and my grandfathers before them all worked on, the, the profits of my business, the home that I built for my family, someone else has that and it's not mine anymore. And that would be heartbreaking. There would be suffering because of families being ripped apart, made slaves. There would be suffering because of the destruction, suffering because of the loss of everything that was taken, and being foreigners in this new place as their captives. It was not a good situation. And that's where Israel finds themselves. That's where where Israel winds up in this spiritual darkness and eventually this physical darkness because of their disobedience. And again, because they were first, it was harshest on these two groups. But this would happen not just once. This would happen over and over again for the next several hundred years. Starts here. Assyria comes in. A huge nation they conquer. Happen again later by Assyria again. Years and years later after that, it happened with Babylon would come do it. Years and years later after that, the Romans would come. Over and over, there'd be this cycle of suffering, captivity, God brings them out, he gives them life, the people fall into disobedience again, and then right back into it, over and over and over again. And then this happens repeatedly, but God had a plan to redeem the people of Israel from all of this. Though they would continue to follow this pattern, they would continue to be in this suffering, the whole point of this prophecy is ultimately hope, and that's what it's going to be getting at. That's why it says at the very last part of that verse, it says, but in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, and Galilee of the the nations. He's saying later on, eventually in the future, God is going to make great this land again. And then it goes in, this is what we're about to read now, verses 2 through 5, and it begins to reference God's incredible plan. Let's read this together. It says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult in every garment that's rolled in blood will be burned as a fuel for the fire. So there's a lot going on there. Again, like the first part, it can be easy to get lost in it and not understand it. So give you a quick summary of what this said, and then we're going to break it down together. This is saying, the summary sentence would be, it's foreshadowing Israel's physical and spiritual redemption. That's what we read. That's, that's all that's happening there. Foreshadowing Israel's physical and spiritual redemption. Everything that's being talked about here, or spoke of here, um, all of these things have both physical importance, like physical meaning, literally these things are going to take place physically, and they have spiritual meaning. That's the, that's the point. That, that's what God's doing through the people of Israel. He's trying to show all of us as the world Two sides, both the physical and the spiritual. So everything we read here follows this pattern. There's this very exciting redemptive language. But as we go through it, you're going to notice there's parallels both to physically what's happening to them and also spiritually what's going on. So let's kind of break this down together. Right off the, the, the bat there, it said that the people who walked in darkness and were in a land of darkness. That's talking about two separate things walked in darkness is talking about disobedience. The people were disobedient. The people who are walking in disobedience before God. And then it says, who lived in a land of darkness. It's talking about captivity. People who are in captivity because of these things. It says, on those people, a light has shown. That light is talking about truth. The truth of God being poured out on them spiritually And then light in the form of freedom and a dawning of of new life as a national group. That's what's being talked about in those two terms. Goes on to mention several other things in this redemptive language, that they're going to have an increase of joy. Literally, they're going to be built up in joy because of what God's going to do for them, both nationally, spiritually. After that, it talks about how they're going to rejoice as the way that they do at the end of a harvest. Harvest time was a really exciting time. You're, you're getting the, the food that you've been working for all year long. And it's saying this word rejoice means to cry out in excitement and, and, and praise really to God. So the saying, you guys are going to be praising God as the same way that you do at, at the end of a harvest. You're going to be rejoicing to God. It says you guys are going to be multiplied as a nation. God's going to prosper you and, and make you grow. And then it says some really cool stuff that it's worth diving into a little deeper in verse 4. I want to read it for us one more time. It says, For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. This is referencing national captivity is what's kind of be talking about here first and foremost. The idea in these words is that word burden means forced labor. So he's saying, He's saying, the yoke or the, the thing you, that's on your shoulders, that, that burden of forced labor that you feel. He says the, the staff for your shoulder, that was a tool that slave drivers would use to beat slaves to do their bidding. Saying that that staff that beats your shoulder that causes suffering, He says the rod of your oppressor, that word oppressor means tyrant and slave driver, it's a reference, like, you are not your own. You are under captivity. Another group owns you. You don't get to do what you want. They're suffering. It's trying to drive home this picture of, of not good situation for them. But it says all of this, ultimately, at the end, that God will break as on the day of Midian. The word broken where it says you have broken as on the day of Midian means to be shattered, removed. The idea is that all of that struggle as, as a nation, all of that slavery, all the captivity, all the suffering that comes along with being a captive to another nation, all of that is going to be taken away. God's going to remove it. But it's really cool because all of this language has double meaning. Think about it in the terms of sin. The yoke of the burden of sin that's on our shoulders, this forced labor of sin, not that we are... Literally, someone's making us do it, but we are all under compulsion of sin because of our sin nature, forced into by our own desires to make decisions to sin and dishonor God. And all of us experience this suffering in the same way that there's this rod that's smacking these slaves and beating them. Our sin causes suffering as it beats us down and crushes us and brings destruction to our life. And we are under this oppressor named sin, called sin, who owns us who is a tyrant over us. But that sin, that spiritual weight that is on us, in the same way as it's going to be taken away as a nation, the physical side, it will be removed on the spiritual side. There will be freedom from it because of what's to come. It goes on in that verse 5, says some interesting stuff. We'll just kind of cover it super quickly. But it said, I'll just read it once more. It'll be easier. It says, for every boot of the tramping warrior and battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. It's talking about the stuff that causes war and destruction, things that were common in battle, in the sieging of nations and the conquering of nations and the enslaving of people, all of these things. It's saying all of that stuff that creates war and death and destruction, it's going to be taken away and it's going to be burned up. The idea here is it's trying to cast this idea of complete peace. There's no more boots for battle to grab onto. There's no more garments stained with the blood of, of death and war anymore. It's all gone. It's going to be wiped away off the map. You won't be able to go back to it. There will be peace. That's what the heart of verse 5 is. And then it gives us the reason why this is going to happen. It's found in verses 6 and 7. If you read this with me, it says, For to us a child is born. For to us We'll do this. This last little chunk summed up again, very simply would be, this is prophesying the arrival of a physical and spiritual savior king. That's what this is. It's prophesying the arrival of a physical and spiritual savior king. So verse six, for to us, a child is born to us, a son is given classic Christmas verse right we've all heard that we all think about that at christmas time gets read frequently at christmas time the thing is there's five verses that came before that that are supposed to add weight to this news they're supposed to add implications both physically tangibly and spiritually and we also often lose out on that this child that's to be born is a son who is appointed to be a king He's not just anybody, he's not just a little savior that we get to look forward to, he is a king. And that language is driven home when it begins to say things like, the government shall be upon his shoulders. The idea of that language, it's it's like an ancient kind of terminology to imply the robe that a king would wear, that would like drape over the shoulders of a king. It's this idea that he, the government's going to be on his shoulders. He will be the ruler of, of the nations. He's going to come and he has a right to rule over the people. That's the idea from that phrase. And then it goes on and it starts to list off these names. And the reason why it does this is because it was common back at this time when a king would take the throne or, or a king or a child who would become king was born, they would receive throne titles or throne names. And they did this all over all different cultures. It's not different or unique to this, but the names are unique because the names that are listed here, these throne names are supposed to imply reputation and character of the king. So let's just take one second to look at these names and see what kind of king this is supposed to be. Starts off saying he's going to be wonderful counselor. That actually translates to supernatural counselor. The idea is that nothing escapes him. There is nothing beyond his understanding. There's no challenge, no issue, no concept too complicated for this king. He is a supernatural counselor. He has answers for all things, and he has plans for all things. It goes on. The next thing calls him mighty God. Translates literally to champion God. Means there is no other God greater than him. There is no other power stronger than him. He is the ultimate champion. He is the most powerful being. There is no one greater than him. He will overcome everything else. Next one, everlasting father. This one's talking about his character. The idea of this name is trying to imply that this king, the way that he will rule over his subjects, he'll do it like a father treats his children. He is a king, but he'll treat all of his subjects like his own kids. And then it implies this idea of fatherly love, paternal benevolence is the, is the idea. This love that a father has for their kids, that's the kind of king that he's gonna be over the people who he reigns over. And then finally, he is a prince of peace. or Literally, he's a prince of salvation or deliverance. He has the ability to, And he has the desire to bring deliverance to his people. To bring salvation and life to them. That's the kind of king that's being discussed here. And as it goes on, it begins to say that this king is going to rule. He's going to establish a kingdom that goes on forever. He's going to establish peace and justice and righteousness that never ends. That's the kind of king that we're talking about here. So for the people of Israel, you have to realize They were suffering under these different captors. They have gone through a lot of horrible things. Over 700 plus years, they're going to continue to face these different captivities, these different forms of suffering, these different destructions, these different breakups and and ripping apart of their families. They're going to continue to experience this. So for them, hearing this news that we read in Isaiah about this coming grace and this coming king who will arrive, for them, it would have been a powerful hope, something that they would be clinging to and desiring. It's not just fancy language for them. After all of that suffering and slavery, loss of their homes, eventually it would come to an end permanently when this king arrives. So with all of this in mind, understanding the deeper things going on in Isaiah 9, this prophecy, all this is talking about Jesus who would come. What I want us to do is jump ahead to Luke chapter 1. We're just going to read this. Verses 26 through 35. This is a classic scripture that we read at Christmas pretty much every year. Now, I want you to read this now with the perspective that there has been 700 years of waiting for this information. 700 plus years of captivity and suffering, and then this news arrives. Let's, let's read this together. It says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. in mind, understanding this prophecy that's been waited on for so long, that they've been desperately hoping for. And then this moment happens with Mary, where this child arrives, is being announced to her that, that his birth is about to take place. There would be great excitement. And with that larger perspective in mind, as we about to enter into Christmas week, we're we're there, as so we're approaching the day that we officially celebrate the birth of Jesus. I want us to have this perspective in mind. And there's two truths that come from what we read that I want to drive home. And they're super simple, but they're meaningful. So the, the two truths, we're going to start with this first one. Very simple. Jesus is the king of the nations. This is our first point, first truth. Jesus is the king of nations. This is a truth, like I said, that the people of Israel were hoping for and clinging to for a long, 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 long time. They needed this savior to come. They needed this king to come to redeem them as a nation. They were desiring that and waiting for it. They had suffered and been subject to so many different people. They were deported from their homes, held as captives as these slaves to multiple different oppressive regimes. They had looked back with these burdensome lives with nothing to pass on to their kids except for more captivity they had realized what was lost as they spent year after year after year in these captive homes, in these captive areas, realizing what was lost and that they have no way to, to fix it themselves. They can't restore what was lost on their own power. And as they realize these things, they have this hope in the back of their heart of this king of nations who will r- arrive. And then one night under Roman occupation, we read that Mary gives birth to a son. Not just any son, the son from Isaiah 9, 6, where it said, to us, a child is born, to us, a son is given. That's the son that's born to Mary. And while Jesus is born and he may ascend to David's throne, David is a a king of Israel from the past. Um, David was a king who loved God. He's called a, a a man after God's own heart. And he was, he's a king that God said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna honor you and I'm gonna honor your, your family. And he's gonna bring the savior through this. But this means that Jesus has the right to that throne. He is the rightful heir to that throne of, of Israel to rule and reign. He is a true king. He has the birthright to it. But he also has the right to reign over all of the earth, all the nations of the world. His kingdom will one day overtake every single nation. It will be global. There will be no place on this earth spared from his, his reign. He will take over. And this is something that was super exciting for the people of Israel. And we lose sight of it a lot of times because honestly, we are very blessed to live where we do. But there is still massive corruption and suffering and horrible things going on all over this earth. Regimes ruling over people who are treating them horribly. And even in our own country, we're beginning to see a lot of things turn for the worse. But one day, Jesus will ascend to the throne. And that's who we're waiting for. Our hope is not in some president, in some king from another part of the world. That's not where our hope lies. Our hope w- lies with the true king of nations who will ascend to the throne. And his promise of freedom and justice and righteousness and prosperity will go all over the entire planet. What's interesting is that the people of Israel were waiting for this to happen. That's what they were looking forward to most. That's what they were hoping in. That's when they expected the Savior to come, they accepted him or expected him to establish his kingdom right away. But that's not what happened. In fact, that his official kingdom on this earth His ascension to the throne here hasn't taken place on a a national scale yet, but it will. We are still waiting on that. Um, And this is prophesied for us in the book of Revelation. I want to read this to you because this is talking about our king raising to the throne in our future. Revelation 2, or 21, sorry, verses 2 through 4 says, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from him on the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eye and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. That's what we have to look forward to when the king comes and reigns. That's what it means when we talk about Jesus is the king of nations. We're still waiting on that part. But there is a truth that already takes place in full right now, and this is our second point, and that is Jesus is the king of our hearts. Jesus is the king of our hearts. Each and every one of us in this building, no exceptions, no exemptions, We are all guilty of sin and we have been captives of sin, all of us. We are all under the weight and the tyranny of sin and none of us can do a thing of our own power to change it. We cannot fix it on our own. We can't restore ourselves on our own. It's impossible. There is no way. But Jesus was born to be our spiritual king and our spiritual savior. And he came to liberate us from the grasp of sin, from the hold that, of the captivity that sin has on us, he came to remove that from us. And for those of us who would turn to him and repent of our sin or turn from it and say, I'm not going to do these sins anymore, but I'm going to bend my knee and bow before the king. I'm going to submit my life to him and obey his commands. For those of us who will do that, he says, I will save you. I'll be your king. I'll remove that. You will not have to be a slave to that anymore." you'll be free in my kingdom. That's why John 10.10, this is Jesus speaking. It says, the thief, talking about the devil, only comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I come that you may have life and you may have it more abundantly. That's Jesus' promise. That's our king's desire for us. When Jesus was born, the people of Israel were only looking for were a king of nations. That's who they were looking for. That's who they desired to show up. But Jesus came to reign over first and foremost, the heart of every single person that would turn to him. That's what he came to do. And one beautiful thing, just as a little side note, that I thought was so cool as I was studying this, I mentioned how as the Assyrians came in, the first people that really suffered were Naphtali and Zebulun. You know the first people that were reached? By Jesus, where Jesus began his ministry, Naphtali and Zebulun. Over 700 years later, God did not forget who were the first to fall. He knew who had been waiting the longest. And he came to them first and began his ministry in that area and began to show them his love first. And then it continued to spread. That's the kind of God that we serve. Jesus' birth ushered in freedom from sin for those who would believe in him. And the great news is that unlike the other part of him being a king of nations, that part hasn't been completely fulfilled yet. This part has been fulfilled. He is a full-fledged king of our hearts today. And every benefit that comes with him as being king is available to us right now in this moment for those who would bow before him. Spiritual freedom and righteousness through Jesus are here right now. And that means that Jesus is a king of nations and he is also king of our hearts. And that's something to celebrate at Christmas. When we're talking about the birth of a king, when we're celebrating the birth of Jesus, when we read these Christmas stories, we sing these Christmas carols together talking about Jesus as a king. It's not just flowery language. It's not just words to try to make it seem special. He is a king and that has weight. He is a lord that means something. That's something for us to be excited about. And this is why Jesus being king is more than just these small terms. And it's for those reasons that I believe that we can rejoice like the people of Israel. And we can truly say the king is here. The king has come. We're ready to follow him right now.